This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends. Rob Borman here. And hey, if you're new to the show and you're wondering what the heck this is all about, who is this guy? Well, I spent 20 years as a community emergency physician, and now I am dedicated to making the work and lives of the medical community better, building resilience through education like this and one-on-one coaching. And to that last point, many of my coaching clients feel a little stuck in their careers. And at some point in the coaching process, they bring up that they want to see what else is out there job-wise, either as a completely new career, you know, kind of kicking the tires, or maybe just a side hustle, or even just something new to keep the creative juices going. And for physicians, one of the low-hanging fruits, if you will, is medical legal work, you know, expert witness, case review. So we have brought in two experts ourselves in this area as our guests today. First up, we have one of the most recognized names and voices in all of medicine, Dr. Amal Matu. Amal, good friend. He is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland. He's known worldwide for his expertise in both educating on emergency cardiology issues as well as medical legal expertise and experience. And in this episode, Amal talks about his life as an expert witness, and obviously not his only part of his life, but part of it, how he came upon it, how he does it, some pearls of wisdom. And in the second half, we will have an attorney, my original podcast mentor, my big brother, former deputy district attorney, Rich Orman, to talk about the pitfalls for physicians on the witness stand and how we can be better. So let's get to it. How did you get into doing medical legal work? Somebody referred a case to me a long, long time ago, and I, I kind of went through it, and I felt like I learned quite a bit from it. And then that same firm, I guess they were happy with my review, and they came back a couple times. And then I think there's kind of a word of mouth within the medical legal community where they start talking to each other. And then uh, people that were sued who had heard my lectures before uh, ask their lawyers, because I think the lawyers would oftentimes ask the defendant physician, is there anyone that you recommend? And so so that's how some of them got referred to me also. And then it, I think it helps to have some type of niche in an area, because if you're lecturing on 50 different topics, they probably don't think of you. But But if there's one particular area that comes up that you lecture on or write about or do research in all the time, then they'll, they'll probably more likely uh, your name will come up. That's kind of how I got into it. I mean, I'm I'm not super active. I probably there hasn't been much at all going on with COVID, but probably I, I'll take on eh, three or four, maybe five cases per year. When you had that first case, did you think, do I really want to do this? Do I want to get into this? Because uh, maybe like once you get in, it could be hard to get out. I really wasn't thinking like that because I didn't think I was going to get that involved in it. It was just one case, and I thought, yeah, I'll take a look at it. But I I felt like I really learned a lot from from looking at it. And so I think that's the the main reason I've done it is just because I feel like I learn a lot from these cases, and and these are things that I've been able to teach the residents about. What percentage of what you do is plaintiff versus defendant? Probably about 85% is defendant and uh, about 50% is plaintiff. And and usually with the plaintiff things, I generally will try to take pretty straightforward cases. 
I don't like having to argue about stuff like that. And I, I kind of feel, you know, they, in many cases, they have been somewhat rewarding because oftentimes if you're on the plaintiff side, you can just convince people to look, you know, you're not going to win this case. Just settle now and get on with your life. Whereas in other cases, they'll find somebody, there's always people out there that'll, that'll, you know, string it along forever. And then eventually they lose anyway. So it's like, if you're on the plaintiff side or even on the defense side, it makes a lot more sense to just say, look, you're not going to be able to win this case. Just, just settle it and be done with it. And let this person go on with their life rather than being dragged through the mud for a few years. And there's one or two cases that I've been involved in on the plaintiff side, which were just egregious. And and I felt comfortable about taking those. I, I just felt so bad for the family. And, and the contention from the defense side was just so out of line, in my opinion, about, about how the patients were managed. You know, I don't, I don't like having to get in arguments about stuff like that. But in some cases, you know, the patients are just truly harmed. In a sense, you know, we're, we're kind of we kind of took an oath to help patients, not each other. So although the, most of the cases I take are for the defense. So, What percentage of the cases that you take do you end up going to court? Very few. I would say that I've reviewed about 80 over the years, mm-hmm. somewhere between 80 and 100. Only about uh, eight or nine have gone for deposition and mm-hmm. about five have gone to court. So the vast majority end up being either dropped or settled. And for the plaintiff thing also, the, when, um, when I've been asked to look at plaintiff side cases also, giving them an honest opinion, sometimes they'll just drop the case and say, look, you know, if you don't have a case, I, I, if I don't have a case, the plaintiff attorney will say, if I don't have a case, I want to know right now so I don't spend hundreds of hours on a case and I'm going to lose anyway because they don't make any money if they lose the case. So they only want to take cases where they've got a really good shot at it. And if you're able to to say, look, you don't have a case for this, 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 and this reason, they'll oftentimes just drop the case. And I feel pretty good about that. How do you review a chart? Most of the time, they'll send me the, the complaint um, that's been filed, or they'll give me a little summary of what the issues are. And so you can read through the summary and, and you know what the contentions are. And that makes it a lot quicker to to go and review that that stuff. And then usually you'll end up having a discussion with the attorney and decide whether you're going to go forward with it or not. In those scenarios, I, I don't review all of the stuff before the initial discussion. I review the relevant stuff. And then if they're going to go forward, then I, I end up having to review all the rest of the stuff. In a handful of cases, they've asked, they, they've sent the ED chart to me and not told me anything about what's happened. They just want a blind kind of a, I guess, a blind review. And you have to go through the chart and try to figure out, well, do you think this was done well or not? And then later on, you find out what happened after the discussion. And sometimes it's a bit surprising what, what ended up happening, but that's kind of how I do it initially. And, and during the past couple of years, I've specifically told people that email me that I only want cases which involve just maybe one or two ED visits. I I don't, I don't want those cases that have hundreds of patients of inpatient records, you're right, you can make a lot more money with it, but that's not why I do it. I'm not going to learn anything from all that inpatient crap. So so I don't really want to spend my time reading through all of that. If if it were all about the money, yeah, the bigger the files, the more money you can make, but I, I'm, I'm just not interested in, in that. 
how do you set your rate for reimbursement? Do you do you say here's what my rate is, or does the attorney say here's what we pay? Is there a negotiation with that? No, no, I, I've had the same rate for all 15 years that I've been doing this. I always, you know, I'm always surprised at how much some people charge, and I'm always, I always prefer being on the very lower end of the charges. Do you get asked that in court how much you're charging? Usually during the deposition, they ask. My experience is that once they find out how much I charge, they never ask again. You know, and I like that. I, I like yeah. being able to go in front of a jury and, uh, you know, they, they never actually ask in front of the jury because my rates are always lower than their expert. Some people, when I'm hearing about cases and I'm you know, talking to attorneys, experts charge like $1,000 an hour. Yeah, and then yeah. if it's in if it's in court, it's like 2000 I mean, it's just these insanely high right. amounts of money. So you've got your own fee schedule. Mm-hmm. And then when you're reviewing a case, you just kind of look at your watch and say, all right, I'm starting now and how much I put in. Like, do you keep a spreadsheet or a log? Like, how do you, how do you document and follow all of this? I just kind of estimate it. I don't have a clock that I turn on and off. But, you know, I kind of round it to the nearest 15 minutes or so, and and then I'll, those that'll be the time that I send in. And I, I try to be reasonable about it. Do you have like an S-Corp or or some other, you know, kind of like a like a side business you set up as far as like like the taxes and, and making it the separate financial entity than what you get as a clinician? No, I haven't done that. I've talked to a financial person about that. Look in, in which case I could have a separate thing with the uh, honoraria from conferences and uh, med mal stuff and, and this and that. And they've allowed me to have a separate retirement account that I've put money into because of that. But there's not actually a separate S corp or anything. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a finance kind of person. So <laughs> I, I've asked them about it and they said, well, you can have a separate retirement account. I said, all right, that's good. That's all I care about. Do you find that you are careful about things that you say on podcasts? Because, I, I mean, I, you've told me that they've played podcasts. Like somebody told me that, oh, yeah, they played one of your podcasts in, in a trial. I, hopefully it wasn't, it didn't like yes. sink somebody. But the, um, like when, how you say things, how you couch things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that anything that you say in a lecture can show up. Anything you say in a podcast can show up. Uh, you know, I do these whiteboard teaching sessions mm-hmm. with the residents, and I put at, during the shift, I write pearls on the whiteboard. I try to be careful about what I write up there. I try never to say, this is the standard of care, or this should always be done. I try to be careful about that. And uh, in in one case, they played a podcast with you. <laughs> what? what in, a, in court? It was from Oregon. <laughs> yes, it was in from Oregon ASAP. It was for Oregon ASAP. You and I did a recording. You recorded me. We were talking about EKG findings yeah. of PE. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and um, and in this audio clip, I had said that if you have T-wave inversions in the inferior and anteroceptal leads together, that's a PE until proven otherwise. And I was trying to help uh, in a case in which a patient had T-wave inversions in a couple of those leads, and it wasn't a PE. And And I was trying to say, this is not a PE. And he said, well, you know, after he did his research, he, uh, after the deposition in, in the court, he pulled his podcast and said, this is a podcast of you and a doctor, uh, doctor from Oregon ASAP <laughs> in which you said, and I was like, well, this is out of context. We were specifically talking about PE. I wasn't talking about all comers. You still have to take the history into account. And he said, well, this is what you said. You said it's a PE until proven otherwise. How did you talk your way through that? 
I don't know that I did. I, I just said, you know, it, it depends on the history. And um, you, you can't just take an EKG without clinical context. You, you have to consider what's going on with the patient. And uh, in that podcast that Dr. Orman and I were talking about, we were talking specifically about PE. We weren't, I wasn't making a general statement that applied to everything. And he said, well, this is what you said. And I said, well, we were having a discussion specifically about PE. And he said, I can play this whole podcast for you right now. And I just said, no, it doesn't, you know, <laughs> I just shrugged my shoulders and said, you can if you want. But we were talking about PE. It was based on a lecture I gave at Oregon ASAP on, on PE in Bend. We were in Bend. <laughs> I remember that. How do you kind of mentally walk yourself through the adversarial questioning process? Where and, and I guess there's a couple aspects of that. You know, some obviously they get they want you to they want you to say the answer that they want, and also there are things where it's like a yes no. I asked you yes or no. I didn't ask you to give an exposition on this. I just say that I can't answer that yes or no. There, there's more to it than that. And then they'll say, "Well, isn't it true, doctor, that this is a pulmonary embolism until proven otherwise?" It depends. It depends. It's not so clear cut. Usually how I answer, they want it to be very clear cut yeah. and uh, medicine's not clear cut. And, and so I, I'll tell them, I, it depends. It's, it's not as clear cut as you are trying to make it seem. Is that okay to, to say that, like, I can't answer it yes or no? Oh, yeah, and yeah. I, I, my, my brother's an attorney and I asked him, what's, what's the best advice that you could give a doctor on the stand? It's like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> so many doctors are yeah. jerks in the stand. And you think you're, you know, you're better than everybody else. Like, just be honest and just be even keeled and just be nice. Yeah. Even though people aren't being nice to you, I think if you are that way, then you're much more sympathetic and people want to listen to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I play in my head oftentimes things that I, I'd really like to nail them on. I'd really like to say this or that. And I'd, I'd really try to like to make them look bad in front of the jury. But in the end, that's not my personality. And so I, I just, I can't do that. I, I can't be successful in that. And, and you know, I, I think I'm a, I'm a pretty even keel, straightforward guy. I'm, I'm not I, I can't be nasty to people, even when people are nasty. I just, it doesn't work for me. And so I just, you know, if people want me to be up on the stand, then I'm going to, I have to be myself. And, and the other thing that kind of relates to your question is that uh, I oftentimes do have to remind myself that I'm not the one on trial. Which is, which is hard, hard to remember. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm just being asked to go up there and speak the truth um, as best I can. And, um, and so I, I try not to get frustrated or angry. And in the end, it's up to the lawyers to win and lose the case. It's not up to me. My my job is just to answer the questions honestly and and maybe express, you know, definitely express my opinions as as best I can. But I'm not the one on trial. And I think remembering that kind of helps relax me a little bit when when things get heated. Do you ever feel a compulsion? to answer in a certain way because you are working for the defense or the plaintiff? I don't think that's a good idea. I think you just have to be straightforward and plain. And, you know, let's say the plaintiff is asking me a question and my answer is not going to look good for the defense. Mm -hmm. Should I, I don't want to lie. I don't want to twist it because that usually comes out. I mean, people can tell. 
let's say it was a case of a pulmonary embolism and the defendant said- Defendant or plaintiff? You are the, de- the defendant's expert witness. And I, I actually, I was doing case reviews and there was this one case where somebody used the AA gradient to say that the patient didn't have a PE. And there was nothing else, none of the other clinical studies, because the AA gradient is normal, this patient doesn't have a PE. They use that. So that came up and they put up the chart the defendant says, okay, person has a normal AA gradient. Not, not that we really use that anymore. PE ruled out, patient discharge home, they die of a massive PE. And then the plaintiff attorney says, well, Dr. Matu, can you rule out a pulmonary embolism with a normal AA gradient? With, with the rule out questions, what I usually say is, is that we don't typically rule in or rule out most things. What we try to do is risk stratify patients. That our job is to risk stratify. And if the AA gradient is normal, then it significantly risk stratifies the patient in the direction of not having a PE. Your Honor, let me rephrase the question. Dr. Matu, isn't it true that you can have a pulmonary embolism and a normal AA gradient? Yes. Doctor, isn't it true that this patient with a pulmonary embolism and a normal AA gradient was discharged under a false assumption? Yes. And that would be to the detriment of the defense. Um, yes. <laughs> yes sir. I, I got uncomfortable you, even talking to you, you like that. You have to, no, you have, you have to be honest. You have to be straightforward because if what happens is if you start saying yes, but you know, it really doesn't work that way. I mean, the jury is not stupid. They, they can tell when you're trying to squig, squirm out of something. Mm-hmm. You know, they're listening to you. They can tell. And and so it, it's a lot more sensible to just be straightforward and honest. And then when the defendant attorney comes up, that's his opportunity to, to, to spin things around and say, earlier you said it is possible for a patient with a PE to have a normal A gradient. But how often does that happen? And that's my opportunity to say, you know, if this were true, um, it's extremely rare. So the, the defense attorney has to take the responsibility of coming back with the rebuttal or whatever that's called. But but I think if you try to squirm out of it or, you know, you sound like a politician who's just trying not to say, you know, I did not have sex with that woman, you know, like Bill Clinton. I mean, you know, people can tell that the jury is they're savvy. I mean, they don't know medicine, but they know people. They, they can figure that stuff out. So if somebody's listening and they think, oh, you know, I'm interested in doing some med mal work, how would they go about that? Like what what would be the the step in reaching out to do that? And what do you think is the right mindset? And what do you think is the wrong mindset? I don't know that there's a wrong mindset that, you know, right off the bat. I, I think there's some people that advertise. I'm not a big fan of that. I have not advertised. They always ask if you advertise. And I think that if you're advertising for cases, it probably looks bad. I mean, on the other hand, a lot of people do it, and they, and they they do fine with that. If you if you really are gung ho, I suppose you could, but it's not something that I'm a big advocate for. Uh, I, I think um, I think what you can do is ask people who are involved in med mal stuff and ask them to uh, if they have a chance to refer cases to you. And then very slowly over the course of years, if if you are trustworthy and reliable and you're straightforward and and you're pretty self-confident about the answers that you're willing to give, then then you, you gradually get more cases. I think it's very educational. I've learned a lot 
from doing these cases, which has, I think, improved my practice, improved my patient care. Uh, a lot of the stuff I've learned, I've been able to teach the residents about also to try to keep them out of hot water. And um, and I've advocated for other people to do cases. I think everybody should be required to do cases. I think it should be part of your board certification. And I really believe that if we flooded the market with honest, straightforward people, the system would be a lot better. And it drives me crazy when people complain about the system, but they don't get involved in trying to fix it. And one way to help fix it is when you have an opportunity to review a case, just say yes, try to get involved in it, whether it's for one side or the other, because I think we need a lot more honest, straightforward people involved in in the system. I was just editing a recording that you said, you've got to know clinical policies and guidelines. Yeah, You've got to know that. Not that that's a standard of care, but because that's going to be brought up in court and then you've yeah. got to explain, all right, why did you deviate that? You've said that to me like 15 times over the past decade, <laughs> that same thing. But it, it just struck me that medical education does not focus on those guidelines, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, you know, we talk about guidelines here and there, but not, okay, here's what's in it. Here's why it is. At first, when I started doing it, I was like, oh, you, you got to know what you say to protect yourself. But I felt actually on the other side, way more heavily weighted that these things actually give you permission to use evidence-based medicine that you were afraid to use before. Mm-hmm. And then in court, like, why did you do that? It's like, look, this clinical policy says that that's okay. Right. Right. Absolutely. So I think, um, especially with the ASAP clinical policies, I think they are very largely protective. They, they, for the most part, don't paint you into a corner. I think they, they're very broad, and and they provide a lot of protection for not doing uh, certain things or doing certain things that people have already been doing without necessarily knowing the literature behind it. Like like you know, CAT scan without the LP when those patients are in the first few hours. But um, I think people run into problems with guidelines when they take part of the guideline and then they kind of go rogue with it. So, um, for example, the chest pain guideline says that if you use the heart score and you uh, I don't know I'm making this up here, but it, you get a troponin at zero in three hours and the heart score is low, then you can discharge that patient. I think that's great, but People say, well, let me try zero in two hours, and that's not what the guideline says or the clinical policy says, or they they come up with their own version of the heart score, and when you actually start adding up the points on the heart score, well, the the score is actually six, not three, when you actually add it up, and um, so I think when, when people don't really use the policy the way it's written, that's when they, they start running into problems, and then the other thing I would say is that the, I think you really need to know about the emergency medicine clinical policies and guidelines. The ones that are written from other specialties, you might be able to get off the hook. For example, the, the ACC AHA guidelines on STEMI, for example. If you're in a deposition and they say, doctor, are you aware of the ACC AHA guideline on how to manage STEMI? And you say, yes, bam, you're, you're heading down the rabbit hole. You better follow that. If you said, no, I don't read the cardiology journals. I just read the emergency medicine journals. They can't use that. You're off the hook mm. from, from that. And, and so I think you need to know the EM ones. You, it's, it's good practice to know the big ones in other specialties. But, um, but if you 
were in a deposition and you said, I read the emergency medicine journals. I don't read those cardiology journals. If that stuff hasn't shown up in the emergency medicine journals and it's not being talked about uh, across the EM conferences and everything, I don't think that you would be responsible for it. It's only when you say, yes, I know about it, then then you start running into some problems. But those things like discharging a patient with a two-hour troponin versus a three-hour, you know, just when you deviate from a clinical policy and something that's high risk, then I think it's probably best to have it as an emergency department clinical pathway or, mm-hmm. or ADP, because then... You're, then your cover's like, oh yeah, this is just our way. It's based on this evidence, and here's the reason why. And it's like, right. oh, okay, you're not you're not doing something that's totally totally out there. Yeah, now, policies are generally pretty well well referenced. Yeah. But if if you're going to use some other um, decision instrument, you you ought to make sure that it has been externally validated, mm-hmm. because anybody can come up with some decision rule. But if it's not validated, then I, I don't think that you ought to be using it. This uh, makes me think about one of the few times I was in court and I was called as an expert witness in a case where I was also the treating physician. They did it some way so they didn't have to pay me to come to court. <laughs> that was what it was. <laughs> I got subpoenaed for this and it was an assault case. And this was my first year out. And I used to write these charts that I thought were so clever, like patient was transferred to the operative theater. I don't know why I dictated in, in, in British accent, but <laughs> <laughs> patient discharged to the operative theater for, yeah, I don't know, lignocaine. And anyway, yeah. so they, <laughs> I, I remember this guy, there's a guy who got really badly beat up and I felt like had an orbital fracture and lacerations. And I, and so in my chart, I said, the patient was in, what an idiot. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I said, the patient was engaged in combat early this evening with another man wielding a stick. <laughs> and so I said, like the Charles Dickens novel. And I thought like, ah, yes, I'm creating such prose in here. You know, as you say, like people blow that up in court. Yeah. To like to six thousand font. It's like let's talk about this. You say he was engaged in combat, so that implies that he was actually an active participant to one of this. I was like, oh, no, I'm not implying that at all. I'm just saying that he was punched in the face. Oh gosh, it's not, it's not what you said. You said that he was engaged in combat, and it's like this this totally silly thing. I'm thinking this is ridiculous, but he stayed on that argument for half an hour, <laughs> right? And I was like, oh my gosh, that let me tell you, I'm just gonna. I'm just going to state what I see as the facts and what the patient, yeah. the patient states X, right. not, not, oh uh, yeah, here, I'm going to, I'm going to write a tale of two cities in this chart. <laughs> <laughs> Be very precise in what you write. I, I think about that case still. And I, and I, I would picture that if ever I was writing something, it's like, okay, if someone is saying this back to me and I'm on the stand, how is that going to sound? Is that going to sound logical or is that going to sound totally mealy mouthed and not make sense? Right. Right. Yeah. Do you ever, you ever sweat when you're on the stand or being deposed? Like kind of like, oh, I'm breaking out. My forehead's breaking out. Can I have a towel, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have Not yet. <laughs> not yet. You can always take a break, by the way. I remember hearing a deposition of you being asked by an attorney. This is yeah. with the EKG machine. Yes. I'm like, well, what if yeah. you couldn't get an EKG machine? What if it didn't, what if the, there was no power and you couldn't get an EKG right. on this patient? Right. And I don't know where that was like, how, how, how did you navigate that? I just thought it was such a laughable thing to be asking. It was, it was a ridiculous comment. But you, you were totally chill though. 
what what I should have said was, then you'd have to go on bypass because you're you're incapable of diagnosing a STEMI. But uh, I just said I, I I just can't see that happening. It, it won't happen. And so I finally got the point that I'm not going to give him an answer for for that, and that it's just it's not something that's going to happen. I think he didn't understand that a STEMI by definition is based on an EKG. He was trying to say, well, you can diagnose a STEMI based on the patient's presentation. But no, by definition, a STEMI means ST elevation on an EKG. So if you don't have an EKG machine, you can't diagnose it. It's just not possible. That reminds me of this attending. I used to work with as as a resident. He was old school surgeon who changed over to emergency medicine. I mean, like really old school. And you'd walk in the room, he'd open the curtain, he'd like put out his hands. He'd say, I look like a, I look like a faith healer. Listeners, you can't see us. Oh, this patient's got a fever. They got a fever and some kind of infectious disease going on here. (laughs) Let me tell you something. He was always right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Indeed. All right. As promised for the second half of this podcast episode, we have a perspective from the other side of the witness stand. Retired Senior Chief Deputy District Attorney in Colorado's 18th Judicial District, my brother, my big brother, Rich Orman. We heard Amal talking about working as an expert witness, and he tries to be honest. And, you know, even if what he says is contrary to the people that are paying him, he says, you know, I'm not the one on trial here. I'm just trying to give an honest answer. And I'm Curious if that is your experience with expert witness is like, you know what, just going to give the honest answer. I'm not going to, uh, not going to be biased to the side that's paying me. Well, every expert witness is going to talk to the attorney that hired them before they testify. And if they come up with a opinion that is contrary to what that attorney desires, the chances of that attorney actually presenting that to the other side or calling that expert as a witness are non-existent. So yeah, you can be as honest as you want, but um, no one's ever going to hear about it. And unless it's a criminal case and you are an expert for the prosecution, then they would give it anyway. When you see physicians on the stand, which I know you, you and I have talked about in the past, and I mentioned this a little bit in our conversation with Amal, what is the biggest mistake that they make, or maybe it's a it's a whole suite of mistakes. Well, there's a lot of things that they do. Um, you know, I think that juries are inclined to believe physicians when they are the treating physician. That you know, if they're the treating physician, especially if it's like an ER or a surgeon or something like that that is presented with an emergency, that person isn't really biased. But the, I think the biggest mistake experts make is thinking for a moment that the jury won't consider them biased. If someone is coming in as a hired gun, if someone is hired to give an opinion for the jury in a particular case and they have not treated the the patient, the jury is going to know they're biased. They are biased, Um, period. They're biased. One side called them, one side, even if they think they're being honest, even if they think that they're giving the right opinion, the questions asked of them create the bias in and of itself. And also there's going to even be an unconscious bias because they're being paid by this side. The big One big mistake they make is the jury is going to think they're just a regular doctor testifying, like someone in the ER is testifying about a broken arm that they saw. 
That's not the case. Another mistake they make, and, and this is, I think, more true for academic doctors as opposed to uh, doctors that do treatment is- Or like, like a community doctor. Yeah, right. Okay. They, all do they all do treatment. Well, some of these uh, don't. But, okay. uh, you know, but the, I, I guess I hear what you're saying there is often, especially people from an academic setting, often they are not used to being pushed back upon. They are used to almost being the voice of God. And what they say is the truth. And their medical students or whoever is looking at them will say, yes, yes, you're, you're right. Uh, that is not the case in court. In fact, there is a person who is experienced and trained to push back and to ask difficult, pointed questions. And um, the thing that I have seen that is a huge mistake is taking that personally mm -hmm. and uh, getting angry at the questions, or you know, it's an affront to you that your opinion would be challenged. Your opinion is expected to be challenged. That is how court works. But I have seen many expert witnesses, and these are the ones who are inexperienced at being expert witnesses, who just get angry. They get angry and when they're challenged. And a jury sees that. And unless the, the opposing attorney is being extremely unfair, a jury is going to look at that and, and feel that that diminishes the credibility of the expert. So I, I think that the, the person needs to have a professional demeanor at all times needs to understand that it ain't personal. It's just business. <laughs> uh, and uh, if they don't do that, it's a huge mistake. How do you prepare your experts for that? Cause it's coming. It's, I mean, it's right. an adversarial relationship that other attorney is not your buddy. Well, most of the experts that I called in my career as a prosecutor were state experts. So for instance, they work for the state hospital or they worked at a crime lab or something like that. And so, yeah, they were sort of my experts, but they were just, you know, they weren't my experts at the outset. They're just experts. And most of them had testified many times before. So I really didn't have to do that. I will say that um, there were experts, especially from the federal government, because it's sort of a dirty little secret. There generally are no federal criminal trials. I mean, very, 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 very few outside of Washington, D.C. and New York. And experts from the FBI and places like that, we had had people that had been like FBI crime lab for 20 years and had never actually testified in court. So with them, they were extremely nervous and um, were terrified, really, of being cross-examined. So what I would do generally is explain to them how it works, and then I would go through their questions with them and go through what I saw as areas of cross-examination. Oftentimes, you know, that, that does it, but, you know, they're, they're generally very, very nervous. So I think you just need to alleviate that fear and do some practice with them. Another thing I always did always is I would write down the questions that I would ask them and send them to the witness before they testified and then go through those questions and answers. Now, I also told them that I might veer off of that. But to me, that was real important to know exactly the questions I was going to ask and exactly the way I was going to ask them. Now, that doesn't really help them with cross-examination, but I think it makes them a lot less nervous for purposes of direct testimony, of answering my questions. Now, often, like I would tell people I do this, like other lawyers, and they would look at me like I was crazy. 
They're like, well, if you send it to the expert, the other side can get their hands on it. And I'm like, yeah, they can, but you can't have that. I'm like, these are the questions I'm going to ask. Yeah, exactly. The other side's going to hear them when I ask them. Um, so it's not, you know, this, this isn't the atomic secrets. This is just the question I'm going to ask. And I don't really care if the other side hears them. So if you ever ask a lawyer, Hey, can you just send me the questions you're going to ask? Uh, well, sometimes they may say, well, I don't even know what questions you're going to ask. And then I'm like, well, they're not prepared. And that's just the case. They're not prepared. Or they may give you that no, because it won't be privileged. And I would just give them the spiel. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you're, they're going to hear the questions anyway. Most of the time, they're going to have an expert report. So they're going to know what your opinion is. So none of this is really going to be a secret, but you will find there's a lot of paranoia about doing that. But to me, that is maybe the best way to prepare yourself for testifying to know the exact questions and ask, ask the lawyer for the exact questions. It's so interesting to get your perspective, the insider's perspective on, on all of this. And I, you know, I think that the, the, the preparation and the questions with the attorney who has hired you for your services or is not going to be adversarial, not so bad, right? I mean, I think you're going to feel pretty, you're going to feel pretty comfortable, but it's the cross-examination where the real sweat comes. I've watched you cross-examine and I mean, you're a bulldog and you are very clearly trying to get that person to say something they don't want to say, to unsettle them. So let me pull you out of that role. Say, say you are, you're cross-examining a physician who is the expert witness. You've got them rocking and rolling. Or you got her rocking and rolling. Super unsettled and they're, kind of, they're getting antagonistic. If you could stop time and come out of your role as the cross-examiner and you are their Yoda, say, look, He's doing this. You need to do X right now to be good in this situation because right now you are sinking. Well, what I would say is the most important advice to give in that circumstance would be just answer the question asked. So what happens is when you're a paid expert, and I and obviously if you know you're from the ER, you may get paid if to call about a broken arm. But I'm saying, you know, you're brought in in a medical malpractice or personal injury to testify. You know, the attorney calls you up and says, I want you to be my expert. If you're that type of person, if you're that type of expert, you need to listen very carefully to the question asked and answer it. But what you often see is the thinking, you can actually see it happen in real time. That physician is thinking, okay, what are the consequences of my answer? You know, what is his tactic there? What is her tactic there? And asking that question, what does that mean? What do I know? What do I have to answer? And uh, they, that, that can get very argumentative. They can seem very defensive. And if you don't actually answer the question or you, or you give much more information, you try to put it in context or something like that. And I, you know, one time out of a hundred, maybe that putting it in context um, that gives more information than was asked is helpful. 99 times out of a hundred, I think it isn't. Because generally, most places, the attorney that called you as a witness can clear anything up that they think is misleading and ask you additional questions when cross-examination is done. But if you get argumentative, if you start talking about other stuff, if you answer a different question, one, a jury looks at that and they're, they're going to see that, right? They're going to see that you're being argumentative. They're going to see you're not answering the question. It's, it's not going to be lost on them. And again, that diminishes your credibility. Another thing I would say is it's very easy, very easy, and this is sort of the same thing, to 
get into the mindset that the witness is having a conversation with the attorney asking the questions and it's given forth back and forth between the two of them. And while that is, I guess, technically true, you are not there to persuade that attorney of anything, right? So if if your mindset is, I've got to argue with this attorney because he's wrong and I've got to convince him that I'm right. Well, that's irrelevant. That attorney's not going to change their mind. And even if they do change their mind, they're not going to care about it. You're only talking to the person making the decision or the people making the decision in the case, either the judge or the jury, as the case may be. And you always have to remember that is where your answer goes. Your answer is not going to the attorney. So you just have to think about that. I'm saying this. How does that make me sound to those people over there? You don't care about the person asking you questions. I can remember being in a a case where I was being cross-examined and the opposing counsel asked this question. I'm I'm thinking, wow, that's a very clever question. I answered it honestly. And then the defense came up and I was thinking, oh God, please ask a clarifying question that will totally refute that whole thing. Because the the plaintiff's counsel had asked something brilliant in a brilliant way which I you know, answered honestly, but I was thinking there's like a whole nother question set that wasn't asked that I can't, I couldn't really expound on. I'm thinking, oh, please ask this, please ask this. Actually, I was, I, was thinking, I was thinking I was sweating about that and they didn't ask it. And I was thinking, oh, there goes the case right there. You know, you were saying the counsel that, is, that has hired you is going to ask a question and clear things up. They just don't know the medicine. They don't know the nuance. Like, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? There's this little thing, this little point there that they need to ask. And I'm thinking, God, I wish I had like a little, uh, it was before the days of uh, widespread texting, <laughs> I could like, text them something. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that you could, you could do is talk to them beforehand and say, you know, if there's something I think you need to ask me, you need to ask for time to have a little conversation with me before you finish me as a witness. And you can even um, have a little agreement with them that you'll, you'll say something that tips them off. So like in that circumstance, I would have actually said to the lawyer, that's a very clever question, Mr. Johnson or whatever. And then maybe that is you say to your lawyer, right? Hey, if I say that's a very clever question, um, <laughs> you know that that is something I really have something to talk about that is not just answering the question. So you may yeah. want to you know, get back to me on that or something along those lines. The thing that always threw me off in the, you know, the, the times that I was in court is that you're asking yes, no questions. And I was talking with Amal about this and I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. You're asked a yes, no question or an isn't it true, but it's not a yes, no answer because medicine is generally not yes or no. You're dealing in risk stratification and probabilities. So, from your standpoint and how you advise experts, what is the way to extricate yourself from a yes-no trap is what it really is and answer in a thoughtful way that actually addresses the complexity and full range of the question? Well, you can just answer it honestly. You can say, I can't answer that as a yes-no question. Or um, you can say something like, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then then they have to sort of follow up. Well, what do you mean? It depends. Uh, is it yes or no? And you go, it depends. That's my answer. And they can't order you to say yes or no. If you say it depends, it depends. That's powerful or not necessarily. Right. Isn't that true? Well, not necessarily. What do the best 
expert witnesses do that the worst ones never do? Prepare. Prepare. If you, well, presumably, if you're called as a, what I would call a hired gun expert, you're not the treating physician. What will happen is they will send you stuff. They'll talk to you. Maybe you'll do an examination. Maybe you'll just review records. And then you will write a report. You'll give that to the attorney. And then months or years will go by before you're called to, t- to testify. And maybe, maybe you'll review your report beforehand and just think that that's going to be good enough to answer the questions. However, um, I would say to the attorney, well, you know, what do you, how prepared do you want me to be? Because I would rather go review all the raw data again. I'd, re- I'd want to go review all those reports, all my notes, and that's going to take time and that's going to cost you money. Um, so that's what I would like to do. I think that you have to be prepared. You have to know all the underlying data, all, all of the underlying information, because if you're going to be cross, you're going to be cross-examined on it, right? And if the opposing attorney says, well, look, you reviewed 50 pages of medical reports, right? Yes. All right. Let's go to this medical report, page 27. Didn't it say blah, blah, blah. And if your answer is, I don't know. Uh, you don't look very prepared. You don't, your opinion is going to be less credible. You know, you can always say, well, let me see that. Um, even then, you know, I still think your opinion is a little less credible that you didn't know that information and you're giving this opinion that, that you should have had that information at your fingertips. So to me, the best experts come and they know the material cold, the, 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 the flying off the seat of your pants experts, um, will not stand up on cross-examination. That makes me think about a case I heard our dad told me about this. He was an, uh, an, an attorney who was heavily involved in this stuff. And it was it surrounded heparin. And they got in like the world's expert on heparin as a, an expert witness. And the opposing counsel brought out a model of a molecule of heparin. And he said, Dr. Smith, do you recognize this? And he said, no, no, I, I don't, I'm not sure what that is. He says, oh, that is the whole thing that this case surrounds on. This is heparin. Anyway, it was like a, t- it was total theater, but it's submarine the case. And I'm not saying this to make listeners nervous, but I say this because the, the cases that I've been in, like hearing that story is thinking, okay, not only do I need to research this case and really understand what the issues are about, but I need to research the primary medical issue and really understand what the current literature says, what the guidelines say, as Amal was talking about, and really, I mean, the basic science as well, because those things are going to come at you potentially if you are the expert because you are being paid as an expert. And I think as physicians and clinicians, we rely on like, I know this stuff. I do this every day. But the foundational material you don't. You don't remember. And that's what's going to come at you, guns a blazing. There was one time I was cross-examining an expert and uh, he had given this report. I think he was an he claimed to be an accident reconstruction expert. And he um, he said, well, if they use this technique in the accident reconstruction, it can exaggerate this effect by up to like 87%. And I I had spoken to him prior to his testimony. And I would always say, if the other side asked to speak to you, you got to talk to the attorney first, but you should always say yes, right? Oh, of course, I will talk to you. Oh, always, always. Because, you know, again, it shows that you're not as biased as as would otherwise be. If you refuse to talk to them, 
I, I think you come across as very biased. So he said, yeah, sure. And I said, listen, I see this thing in here, this, this 87%. Where do you get that from? Is there any article I can look at to see the basis of this? And he, he just off the top of his head, rattled off three articles, assuming that that, that would you know bluff me into just accepting that. I said, well, thanks. And you know, these were things I, I couldn't just go to the library and get. So I actually had to send off to the publications and buy like prints of these articles, which I did. And I saw in there, it didn't say like 87%. It said like 23%. So I was able to say to him, this, you told me this article, something you relied on that would give you the basis for this. And he goes, yeah. And I go, does it say 87%? He said, can I see it? And I showed it to him. He goes, no, it says, you know, whatever, 24% or whatever it was. And, um, I don't think that that guy had any credibility whatsoever after that it happened. And I've seen things like that happen time and time again. Well, one other thing I can suggest, and it's a mistake that is more and more common these days, is assuming that the opposing side will not read your social media posts. Yeah. So um, I have seen experts post on social media I've even seen one say this, I'm going to be cross-examined on this subject. Does anyone have any ideas they can give me to um, <laughs> you know, respond to these types of questions? And I'm like, boy, that's really bad. Um, or you can write something that shows a bias, right? You can write something that shows that you have adopted opinions that are contrary to medical evidence. So like if you came out and uh, you know, you said you know, penicillin is not effective. Penicillin is a joke. Penicillin never worked in the first place, right? And then you're called as a witness on like a broken arm, right? It has nothing to do with penicillin. You think what would the penicillin post have to say about that? I would say, as an opposing attorney, I said, Judge, this is like a geologist saying the Earth is flat and six thousand years old. And I should, if, if they are taking opinions that are contrary to the science, I should be able to show the jury that they have opinions that are contrary to science or show a bias, even if, even if it's not directly related to their testimony. I think almost any judge is going to let the attorney do that. I think that in this day and age, you have to realize that everything you say, anywhere you say it can be used against you in a court of law. When you, when you hire an expert, you say, delete your social media accounts. Right well, I, I would say... If you're hiring an expert witness, you should do so with the eye of how is he going to be, are they going to be opposed? Like what, what, what's the other side going to find out about them? So I would do searches for them. You know, I would look at their social media. I would look at all of that. Here's another thing, Rob, that you asked back, back to your question before, what is a mistake that experts make? So there's two things that happen in court. There's direct testimony, direct examination, where the attorney that calls you as a witness asks you questions. And generally, those are not leading questions unless you're a hostile witness, right? Those are not leading questions. They have to ask you open-ended questions. They really can't ask you yes, no questions if the other side objects. That is when you testify. But cross-examination, if it's done really well, is when the attorney testifies, right? You're not the one testifying. The attorney is. And that's why they get to ask you yes, no questions. That's why they get to ask you, is it right questions, right? Is that right? They're the one giving the information, not you. If they're prepared, that's the way it goes. You are the vehicle for them to get their information out or to uh, attack your position 
Um, you know, and that is if you said that like to a judge, they would say, no, that's not what the rules of evidence say. But in law school, that's what they taught us. Cross-examination is when the attorney testifies. You definitely don't learn that in medical school. Yeah. So you wanted to speak with the docs in your area about interacting with attorneys and yeah. and being witnesses. What did you want to tell them? Well, so something I noticed was that emergency room doctors or you know trauma surgeons and things like that were extremely hostile to us as prosecutors, extremely hostile. And I wanted to figure out why and what we could do about it. And so whenever I used a doctor as a witness, and that was usually like an ER doctor or treating physician or something, I would call them up and I would say, uh, hi, doc, you know, my name is so and I say, my name is Rich Orman and I'm the, <laughs> I'm the prosecutor on this case and you treated this person. And I'd like to talk to you about you being a witness and, you know, how that's going to go. Cause I want to make it as easy as possible for you. And, I, you know, so I would introduce myself, familiarize myself. I would say, look, we're looking at these dates are any of these dates bad for you? Or do you have any vacations planned or anything? I need to work your the round of schedule. And I would do that before I set the case for trial. And so that when the judge said, how about October 5th? I'm like, my witness can't do October 5th. And then I would say, look, I'm going to call you as a witness. You're going to get a subpoena. I need you to sign that and return it to me. But I can promise you this. When you come into court, I will try to keep your time here to a minimum. I will move. I, I can't guarantee that. But I will try to move heaven and earth. I will call you out of order with the witnesses that I would rather call first or second. And I will do all of that because I, I know your time is valuable. And, and I want you to un, I want you to understand that I know your time is valuable. And they, I found that they usually appreciated that. I think, though, that 90%, 95% of my colleagues would read the file, set the case for trial, then just send a subpoena to the doctor without calling him, without even talking to him first. 100% of the time. And then when the doctor shows up, Oftentimes, maybe the case has been continued and they showed up and they weren't called off or they sit around all day before they testify. And I would say to people, you cannot treat doctors that way. They're, they are professionals. Um, and you know, you're costing them money by not being able to treat patients. And um, they would say they're a witness like anybody else. And so I often had this argument with people. So finally, when I actually got into a position of authority and I was sort of in charge of all these people, I called a uh, doctor that you know as uh, I said, look, can you come in and talk to my prosecutors about the experience you have as a doctor? So he came in and he he said, this isn't going to be a fun conversation. And he then, <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, I don't want it to be a fun conversation. He goes, people got to get mad at me. I want them mad. Right? I want them to understand how you feel. So he came in and a lot of people took it the wrong way. I was shocked. I'm like, and, and I said, to, you know, I said, here's the rule you will do what I say, or uh, you'll get fired. I said, you will call every doctor beforehand. They will not get a subpoena without at least you trying to talk to them first. And then I would hear back, well, but, but they might not call me back. And I go, did you hear what I said? You had to try to call them. You have to leave a message. You have to do something. They have to know you tried to call. Them. And I said, and you will move heaven and earth to keep him here as quick as possible. And I don't, and, but, but that might not be good for the case. And I'm like, I don't care. You're going you're gonna to treat that doctor with the, the respect that they deserve. And um, got a lot of pushback on that too, um, because it was just not the way things had been done. So I think over the you know time that I, I sort of had this policy, people got better about it. But I have a feeling now <laughs> that I'm gone, it probably backslid to um, 
the way it was before. I don't know. Yeah, and certainly getting out of the the, the realm of the you know, I guess you'd say hired gun or the expert, the, the true expert witness. And then, you know, you're being subpoenaed for a case and sometimes you're being subpoenaed as an expert, but you're not paid as like the case review hired expert. You're just kind of posited as an expert there on the stand. And yeah, that is generally the case is you, yeah, you, you get a subpoena, you get served. And the way that it, it works now is that they kind of, you know, just put it in your mailbox or give it to someone, like someone has to touch it and not you have to touch it. And Oh God, I remember I got served one time. I was uh, I was a really busy shift, and I, I was like back for lunch, and someone was calling, and says, "Hey, someone's here to 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 talk to you. They say it's really important, really important, and you know that like I can't wait." I'm like, "Oh God, like must be a patient family." They said, "All right, well, like send them back." And they came back, and they served me there right in the middle of my shift. And I was like, "Man, that that just pissed me off so much." Yeah, well, you know that I never had to have a doctor personally served. I always got them to just sign the subpoena and send it back to me. But I can tell you, I, we often had to have doc, other attorneys often had to have doctors personally served. And I think the reason they did that is they didn't call them up and explain what was going on before they got the subpoena. Rich Orman, the OG Orman podcaster. Such a delight. Thank you. Ciao. And that is it for today. Thank you, Amal. Thank you, Rich and listeners for complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode. You can go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. If you want to reach out about one-on-one coaching, you can do it there as well. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.